Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. And as we begin this episode, which I'm really looking forward to today, let's, uh, if it's appropriate in your time and place, probably not while you're driving a car, close our eyes together. And imagine, if you will, that it's the end of December in 2019. Depending on where you live, the sun may or may not be shining, the birds may or may not be chirping, and if you believe in that sort of thing, you may have set some sort of uh, intentions, even resolutions, for the next year. There may have been a sense of hope and optimism and general look-forward-to-it-ness for the year ahead. And uh, then 2020 happened. And needless to say, I think that most of us didn't exactly have what this year has brought us in mind back in January. We've been in quarantine, we've come face-to-face with a reckoning with some of the worst parts of human nature, and we've been exposed to, I mean, being frank about it, some really serious collective trauma. In that broader context, talking in terms of whether someone stuck to their resolutions this year sounds at best trite, if not insensitive and actively ridiculous. If you manage to do so, then wow, my hat's really off to you. But uh, I certainly haven't, uh, nor have I really tried to, since about March, given all the disruptions that have happened to other layers of our lives. But today it's worth noting that it's July. We're halfway through what has been a thoroughly strange year, and it's a good time to take stock, check in with ourselves, and maybe even establish some new commitments, even if they're just as simple as being kind and forgiving to ourselves of what has happened with the year so far. When things happen to us that we're not in control of, it's easy for that to be demotivating and to kind of sap our sense of underlying agency. And that feeling of agency is really critical for mental health. One way that we can reclaim it is by finding where we do still have influence over our outcomes, and that's what we'll be exploring today, how we can start anew under the circumstances that we now find ourselves in. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to take a moment to remind you about our Patreon account. You can find us at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a cup of coffee or so a month, you can support the show and get access to a bunch of bonus content, like expanded show notes that I put together for each episode. To help us through this mid-year check-in and find a fresh start, hopefully, I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm fundamentally really good, Forrest. And I'm also glad that we're exploring this. And as a shout out, uh, I am struck anew by uh, just how good your material is. <laughs> so I'm really happy uh, to uh, explore these topics with you, uh, including a number of the kind of themes and questions you've, you've prepared for this, uh, this conversation. Oh, well, thanks, Dad. No, I totally appreciate it. And um, I know that, again, kind of on a personal level, you're not necessarily somebody that I would categorize as being kind of a resolutions guy. I mean, I I have sort of a vague memory being younger and toward the end of the year, maybe you would kind of come down from the mountain and you would have you know, the mountain that is your office in our converted <laughs> laundry room. And you would have some kind of pronouncement about what this next year, like yeah. the focus of it will be for you. But it would be kind of that. It would be sort of like a sentence. It wouldn't yeah. be eight goals that people have when they enter the new year. So um, in the context of that, how have you been approaching thinking about this year as a whole, and perhaps maybe in terms of some of the hopes that you might have had entering it? Yeah, well, I think intention is really helpful, fundamentally. Like, what are your intentions? And intentions happen at a lot of levels. We can have 
uh, very specific concrete plans. We can have kind of an internal admonition to ourselves like, yo, get out of bed an hour earlier to work out, you know, stuff like that. And then there's this underlying inclination of our own heart and listening to that inclination and, frankly, letting it be the wellspring that lifts us, the updraft that carries us, the current that moves us along. That's another way to relate to intention. And so at the level of what could be called form, planning, uh, as you know, I had a book that came out in early May and we had planned many, many events. I was gonna be on the road. Uh, right now I would have been in England um, instead of <laughs> in my home in San Rafael, California. Uh, <laughs> and 32 in-person events blew up uh, when yeah. we as a family ourselves in California generally shifted into shelter in place around mid-March, just three and a half months ago, which is remarkable to appreciate how much has just happened in the last three and a half months, you know, all that blew up and we had to scramble and shift and so forth. And the losses for us, uh, I think were mainly around inconvenience. So how do you grapple with that, right? And one of the things that's been just a ongoing reflection for me a lot lately is being honest about what is lost and also honest about an expansion of compassionate sorrow for the pain of others uh, in a whole new kind of way. I mean, that's been very real. And then there's also a recognition of what can never be lost. That's where my attention has been drawn a lot to the sense of love between, you know, father and son, you know, in family that just cannot be lost. Uh, a sense of your own underlying goodness cannot be lost. Uh, underlying wakefulness and awareness cannot be lost. Uh, the good intentions in your heart that were never lost. And so that's, you know, kind of where my head's been, been at a lot. I think that one of the big themes that you're speaking to is this idea of kind of putting things in their context, mm. where you're evaluating the state that you're in right now based off of the state that you're in right now, right? Not based off of some hope for what it could have been or some sadness over yeah. what should have been and what wasn't or whatever it might be. Of course, there's an appreciation for those things. But looking forward, you're saying, this is my life, this is where I am, and this is what I'm going to do with it now, yeah, for better or worse. And there's an obvious context here where for us, our losses have been pretty limited. There are resources that we can draw upon that other people perhaps cannot draw upon, and that is scaling our experience of the really significant challenge um, that many people are going through right now with regards to COVID or many of the social things that are going on in the environment or whatever it might be. But even so, I think that we can kind of all, regardless of how impacted we've been by this experience, give ourselves some grace to steal a line from Dr. Sherry Taylor, who was somebody who I spoke to recently. It was a line from the podcast that I really appreciated. And I think that that's such a critical part of any kind of like reframing or starting anew or whatever that we want to do here. And that's just having some self-compassion. It's like what endures and what falls apart what rusts and what cannot be corroded. Hmm. And I think my own view about this time in the world altogether, and certainly the, the time here in, in America, my home country, I think of uh, sort of three R's, and I apologize for being writerly about this, um, reckoning, repentance, and renewal. I, I think we're in a reckoning, and as a reckoning, uh, two big, themes pop out in which there's a reckoning on 
the ways in which I think we have underinvested in ourselves as individuals, which is then revealed when the external supports and scaffolding of our life is stripped away as the storm is howling around us. We're left with what largely we've grown inside and to some extent developed with other people in our immediate situation. And I think there's a good wake-up call for many of us, including for me, about investing more deeply inside our own roots, growing more of the good inside ourselves. And then, of course, there's, there's repentance, facing the ways we've been participants in systems uh, that we've benefited from. Some of those benefits are due to the sweat and blood and tears of other people stretching back through centuries that are baked in to the systems that we benefit from. There's a repenting, I think, that's appropriate about that. And then also a renewal. I'm actually really hopeful if we just get to the other side, you know, and <laughs> I just, maybe that's the grace aspect there and um, the, the sense of perspective. You know, it's, it's, I remember reading this thing that came across like just somebody was saying, oh my God, it's always been March. And there are times where it just feels like, holy moly, it's always been this. But the truth is, we've been at this for three and a half months now. Big time. Yeah. Most of us, certainly in America, in terms of you know the actual consequences of this whole COVID thing. Yeah, absolutely. And to kind of take off of what you're saying there, a big part of what we want to do here with the rest of the episode is kind of frame the future in terms of the things that we actually have under our control. Getting back to what I said during the introduction to the episode, it's really important for mental health to have an experience of agency. And a lot of things have been taken away from us this year in one way or another, whether that's just you can't go to the barber you want to go to, or it's much, much, much more big picture devastating losses that a person might have experienced in their life over the course of the last six months. And it's easy for those things, those big picture things that we really don't have any control over, to kind of steal our experience of agency and to sap many of the little things that we do actually have control over. Um, so it becomes really important to, in keeping with your broader you know, life point of taking in the good and all the work you've done with positive neuroplasticity, to be able to refocus on and reclaim that sense of agency by framing the future in terms of where we can actually change things and by finding the opportunities to have those good experiences and build positive habits and all of that good stuff which includes thinking about the different categories of things that we could realistically accomplish or change under the circumstances that we find ourselves in right now. That's very wise for us to, I wanna actually kinda edit what I just said there a bit ago or, or contextualize it. When I said, you're gonna be okay, we're gonna be okay. Let's be really clear. Many people in, at a small scale, myself, um, are grappling with irrevocable losses they will not be repaired. And they are what they are. And when we get to the other side, whatever that is, we will still be very affected by them. And, and for many people, the losses are enormous. Economic losses, permanent disruption, uh, major health issues that they've now acquired due to getting through a plague and not getting killed by it, but at least now they have certain health vulnerabilities going forward. You know, it's real. I don't, I, in no way, shape, or form do I want to understate that. I just want to offer that as uh, a psychologist and, and just as a person, that one thing that helps us get through the current crud is some realistic sense that there will be something a little bit better for us around the corner. Now, that corner 
might be nine or 12 months away, but you know, it's around the corner. And also I think it's very helpful as a matter of coping to stay in touch with refuge. That's another R, sorry about that. Refuge, where <laughs> you just have a sense that even though it totally sucks, let's say, there are things that don't suck that we can take refuge in, mm. whether it's a fundamental sense of uh, you know wisdom from different perspectives we draw upon, or a community with others, or uh, qualities within ourselves, or a sense of inner serenity, maybe deep down inside, a stillness inside, an awareness inside that itself is never harmed by what passes through it. You know, we can take refuge in that, and I think that's really important. And one of the fundamental refuges that you're highlighting is that there, it's an inherent human freedom that I know you're very fond of for us, is this space between stimulus and response in which we can find our footing and choose how we will relate to our circumstances. Right mm -hmm. there is agency. Right there we are hammers and not nails, uh, cue balls instead of eight balls, in how we, <laughs> right, in how we engage our own experiences. Yeah, And totally. to claim that and to take refuge in that and to know that. Uh, I think of it as the inner temple. No one can, uh, you are the boss of your inner temple. On the other hand, no one can sweep the floors but you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's great. No, that's really, really well said. So I think that's some really good context for kind of the first half of our of our conversation here. Um, and I want to sort of move us toward what more people can do practically yeah. to either establish some new goals or to relate to the ones that have fallen away, whatever that might be. All that said, I think it's really understandable that somebody listening to this might be looking back on resolutions or goals or whatever that they set at the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020, and even understanding inside of themselves that this has been a very unusual year, that a lot of things have gone off the rails. You know, shame is a very normal human emotion, and they might be feeling some shame, some disappointment, um, some self-criticism, however you want to kind of frame it over not having achieved some of the things that they set out to achieve. Particularly, I kind of think of myself here, I'll often have one goal or framing or whatever um, at the end of a year that I really go, okay, next year is the year that I do blank. This is the year I'm gonna make it happen. And then, you know, 2020 happened, that all kind of went sideways. If you were talking to that person, either as a client of yours or just kind of like grabbing a coffee with them in the kitchen as you're wont to do with friends and family, um, what would you kind of want to say to them to help move them through that feeling? Oh boy, so much there and so much I can personally relate to. Um, we can be vulnerable to feelings of inadequacy, falling short. There can be an overly active inner critic. There can be under-resourcing of what I call the internal caring committee, allies inside, voices inside that are encouraging and sweet and helpful and valuing and cherishing. So. That's kind of a background, you know, and really rich territory. And uh, I know we've done some uh, episodes on that. Why don't we just say a couple of things that are for me go-tos. Uh, first is, what's fair? To ask yourself, if another person had your life, what would be a fair appraisal? As you see fit, as you judge best, but what would be a fair appraisal? And honestly, a lot, as soon as we do that, as soon as we externalize it to another person, we immediately see, oh my God, considering everything that happened, they're doing amazing, <laughs> right? Uh, when everything is falling apart, good on you, right? Well, then why not apply that to ourselves? So what's fair? I think that's a good place. Another one is 
where do we go from here? Whatever happened and whatever was disrupted and spun around and twirled out and you can't do anything about it, it is what it was, and, and including our own mistakes. Uh, without a doubt, I've made mistakes uh, this year of different kinds that I can think about, including in my relationships with other people. All right, whatever is true, whatever is true, what can you do from here? I think arguably the three most hopeful words in the English language are from now on. As they say in Tibet, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. What's the most important minute of your life? It's the next one, minute after minute. So from now on, and boy, oh boy, putting daylight between you and the train wreck heals a lot of wounds. In other words, whatever the past was, whatever you did yesterday, be better today, right? Or to quote Samuel Beckett, apparently, his saying is, fail, fail again, fail better. <laughs> fail better today <laughs> than you failed yesterday. And yeah. you can take refuge in that knowing that, okay, mm. maybe I was a real wanker yesterday, but I'm not going to be such a wanker today. I'm going to do better today. And you can, you can find your footing in that. So I would just say those two things. You know, be fair in how you appraise yourself uh, and also just dust yourself off, take a big breath, and then recommit today. Yeah, I think that there's a lot there that is right on. And to give kind of, I guess, my take on it for a second, my real experience for myself is that it's very easy to be motivated around certain um, certain times that we've established as a culture are the moment for growth and awakening, like New Year's being kind of a classic one. And if you kind of fall off the wagon for a week or two, it's really easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater and just go, oh, okay, I fell off. So now there's just no point, And I guess I'll try again next year to kind of give a little bit of an exaggerated take. But I think people really do do that all the time. I didn't work out for two days. So what's one more day, you know, whatever it might be. And for me, it's been really, really helpful to try to establish a practice of viewing each day as a discrete event and viewing each day as an opportunity to kind of start anew with a good practice and be the person that I want to be today, regardless of the person that I was yesterday. And that reframing has been really helpful for me personally. So maybe with that as a context, what are some other practices, thoughts, ideas that you have that might guide somebody toward finding some of those good practices and behaviors. I, as you know, am both uh, trained in approaches that are extremely practical. I have a business background, so you manage by objectives and you wanna have deliverables that are concrete and time-bounded for which there's crystal clear accountability. Responsibility can be shared, but accountability is individual and specific. You know, otherwise, you're, it's like playing volleyball and two people staring at each other as the ball drops between them, so you wanna know what your accountabilities are. On the one hand, on the other hand, um, I think it's also very helpful to, as I sort of said early on, to have a clarity about general principles or the, including the kind of the feeling of the principle or the feeling of the value, such as compassion or effort or um, you know, fundamental kindness toward other people you know, that, that, that lifts you and inspires you and carries you forward. So both are true, and we tend to move back and forth between these sort of general abstract notions, which if they're to have power, there must be some feeling of them as well as the reward in them. Otherwise, it's just commandments on high. Someone's preaching at us, well, whatever, go away, right? But it's also very important 
to be clear about the operationalization of them. And I find, honestly, one of the most useful questions uh, between two people who are grappling with something, this is a slightly off topic, but it's also very relevant to um, you know, our planning for this year at this mid-year check-in, is what would it look like if you got what you wanted from me? Mm. Not asked obnoxiously, but genuinely. Let's operationalize it. How can I know that I'm addressing your complaint here, your wish, your, your unmet need, your longing, your grievance, your upset with me? What would it look like if I delivered the goods, right? And uh, I like to know uh, what it would look like, you know, then it gets very concrete. So I think uh, you've done some real interesting reading recently uh, uh, related to this great book coming out or out, Atomic Habits and stuff like that. You may know this idea from Buckminster Fuller uh, of the trim tab. It's a very powerful idea. It's this notion that an enormous ship, even half a mile long, like a super tanker, is governed by roughly a tiny, relatively speaking, blade of metal, its rudder, maybe 20 feet tall, 10 feet deep. You know, that's the rudder that then moves this half mile long uh, ship. The rudder itself apparently can be moved by what's called a trim tab, a little strip of metal that's maybe six feet long, a few inches deep. That moves the rudder, which then moves the ship. So the question for a person might be, what are the trim tabs of your life? What are those seemingly small things that cascade uh, into a whole bunch of benefits for you, including lifting your overall level of being? For example, I find that when I go to bed the night before is probably the major factor of what my next day is like. Or for example, uh, people getting a little bit of internal practice, you know, a minute or five or 10 where they just kind of settle, they gather themselves, maybe with their yellow pad, or maybe just quietly meditating on the feeling of breathing, but they, they ground and center and it sets up their whole day. Or maybe it's somebody who just spends a minute reflecting on three things they're grateful for before falling asleep. That also raises their whole level of being, sets them up for their whole day. And you know, different people have different practices. So I would just kind of leave People maybe with the notion of what's one thing, just one thing, that if you started doing it or stopped doing it, would have a trim tab like major impact on your days and then weeks and the years of your life. Yeah, I think that idea of these key habits, these um, fulcrum habits, trim tab habits, however you want to kind of refer to them as these little levers that move a big ship is a great way to think about it. I definitely have some of those in my life. One of them is absolutely when I go to bed at night and when I wake up. Another one of them is just like how many hours of focused attention I give my work in a given day. As somebody who's largely self-employed, I have a lot of flexibility over how many uh, how many hours I spend doing that. The old joke about entrepreneurship or self-employment is that, oh yeah, it's great. You get to set your own schedule and you can work any 80 hours of the week you want. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but, but the truth is that when you are um, making that choice every day, you have a lot of opportunities to exhaust your willpower. And here's this essential idea with habits that uh, I want to give a shout out to two people that you kind of mentioned before, Charles Duhigg and James Clear. We've had Charles on the show. He's great. Power of Habit is just a foundational book in the space. 
And these days, as you said, I'm reading uh, James Clear's excellent book, Atomic Habits, and I'd strongly recommend it. It's been awesome. I'm about halfway through it so far. One of the ideas in both of these books and in the broader kind of literature on habit that I've found most helpful is the idea of removing decision points from yourself as much as possible. So essentially, if um, it's the difference between answering a question in two ways. Let's say that you are trying to stop smoking. That's your goal. You have smoked in the past and you don't want to smoke in the future. Somebody offers you a cigarette. What's your response? Well, most people would say, no, thank you. I'm trying to quit. Trying is an interesting word. It is an agent word. You can try to quit or try not to quit. And you can distinguish that with a different kind of phrase. No, thank you. I'm not a smoker. There's no decision in the second phrase. It's a statement of identity. Um, and as we can increasingly move our goals from things we do to things we are, that is like a huge game changer for us as people. So to give a little example, I've been trying to, trying, there it is again, I've been applying this in my own life, no trying, I'm just applying it. And uh, one of the ways that I focused on it is through biting my nails. I'm a chronic nail biter. So I've tr I have tried, I have sought to increasingly think of myself not as, oh, I'm trying not to bite my nails today, but instead, no, I'm not somebody who bites my nails. And it's really easy for my inner critic to chirp up at that moment and say, no, Forrest, you absolutely are somebody who bites their nails. These are all the times that you have bitten your nails in the past, so why wouldn't you just continue doing that, and that statement is wrong, and it's a falsehood about yourself, and you should be honest about yourself, Forrest, gosh. You know, it's really easy for that narrative to kick in. And then I can just kind of reframe it and say, no, I was somebody who bit my nails, and now I am not somebody who bites my nails. And I think that you can apply that kind of an idea to almost any goal that you want to achieve in life, you know, within some amount of reason. And what's so powerful about it is that it shifts from action to identity. And by reframing identity, all of these powerful things can change in our perception of ourselves and the perception of our world around us. So do you have any kind of thoughts on that, Dad? I think that's really interesting. And so question for you, Forrest, when you look to the second half of this year, yeah, are there any trim tab-like identity mm. statements yeah, sure. that you're wanting to cultivate or give yourself over to or, or mm. live into being? Great question. Um, well, the honest answer is that there are a number, and I'm deciding which one I'm comfortable sharing on a public forum. <laughs> That's good, <laughs> because whatever you say will be used against you, one way or another, by someone. I know. People are going to quote this back to me. They're going to say, hey, Forrest, I heard that you said that you were going to do this, and That's now right. you're not doing it. That's so right. I, I'm holding myself publicly accountable here, I suppose. Um, hmm. Um, sure, I'll, I'll go with a relatively vulnerable one. So as you might be able to tell listening to this podcast, I like to talk about things. And my talking about things generally comes from a place inside myself of wanting to share and wanting to join. I view kind of conversational chatter as a very um, communal activity that is really about, I present my ideas and the other person presents their ideas, and then we kind of work on these ideas together, and through that process we come to a greater understanding. But a lot of people don't really talk that way. 
And to people, when I kind of approach a conversation in that fashion, it can feel argumentative or like I'm critiquing them or whatever it might be. And that's a tendency that I've had really since I was a kid. Uh, there have been phases in life where it's come from a more argumentative place and, play, and phases in life when it's come through a more kind of interested, supportive place, but that's kind of always been my tendency. So one of the things that I do want to shift inside of myself a little bit more is a movement into kind of um, communicative empathy, where I sort of take my own advice a little bit more and I try to start by joining in my conversations more frequently before I move into kind of... Um, interrogation with you know whatever it is I'm doing. Or dispute. I'm, yeah, or dispute where I've kind of start interrogating the idea. And doubt. I think that's some yeah. of the yeah, doubt essentially. And I think that's some of the the tendencies that might make me a pretty good podcast host are also ones that can be a little challenging sometimes mm -hmm. in interpersonal relationships. I, I think that doubting that doubting mindset is a good mindset when navigating the often uh overclaiming and pseudoscience-y and convoluted world of self-help. But, you know, in an average conversation, is that what you want to be engaging with most of the time? And for most people, the answer is no. They just want you to kind of support them and smile and nod and be nice to them, essentially. Um, and while I would like to think I'm a nice person, I'm not always the smile and nod type. Uh, so, so that is a tendency inside of myself that I've wanted to kind of shift in my identity. And really thinking of myself as being an empathic person in terms of my my actions and communication rather than just feeling empathy inside of myself. That's beautiful. That's great. Well, thank you. <laughs> if you were to <laughs> summarize that in a sentence or a phrase or word, this sure. identity, you know, I am fill in the blank, what would it be? Great practice. And um, you're talking to a therapist, you know. Yeah, I, I could tell. You're turning it on with me here. It's great. Um, what a great question. I, I think that it would actually probably come down to I am something like I am really supportive or I am more supportive. Because mm -hmm. um, I think that that's what it's about. I think it's about other people feeling support before they feel like the you know the foundation of the house is getting a little wobbly if that mm -hmm. kind of makes sense mm -hmm. yeah i think that that's the movement more towards support rather than critique mm. yeah well i can say certainly that uh building on strengths to, to strengths i experience you as very supportive and mm. um also just a quick sidebar uh, from my background in the 70s about affirmations uh, affirmations mm. seem to be best if they are as you did it here stated in the present as a complete sentence, which is positive. Mm, People mm -hmm. can get a little rule bound around proper form, but fundamentally what works for you. So I am supportive is a clean affirmation. It would be different to say, I am trying to be su supportive, or I want to be supportive, or I am not such a critical listener something, because that's negative. Da -da. So anyway, like that. Well, I'll, I'll play the game too. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, it, it's interesting actually, in the last several years, what has surfaced for me are residues from my own childhood and the value as a counter to them of the felt recognition. In other words, seeing and feeling that I'm a basically good person, to put it a certain mm. way, that I'm a good boy, actually. 
you know, identify as male. So a good boy. And um, that recognition, which we can fairly readily have for other people, so-and-so is a basically good person. We can see that about them. And, and we kind of bring a certain blessing to them, not necessarily at all in a religious framework, but we just sort of, oh, I, you know, I regard you as. And when you're on the receiving end of someone who regards you uh, as a basically good person and there's a valuing of you, right? You, you feel seen for who you are as a basically good person with like an appreciative, you know, there's this, I think, line, appreciative inquiry, you know, where there's an appreciative viewing or recognition of you that really helps to receive that from another person. And it particularly helps, of course, to receive it from ourselves. And so, uh, and I find found for many people that at a deep level, there's a fundamental doubt of whether they're basically a good person or a swerving away from the feeling knowing of that as if it mm. would be somehow narcissistic or selfish or sinful even or vain to drop into that. But actually, it's there's a goodness in ourselves and it's good to recognize that. So if, if I were to do it, it would be something like, you know, I know I am a good person. You know, I, mm. I am a good person. That part's pretty clear. It's the knowing <laughs> that mm. I'm trying to help <laughs> myself with, uh, knowing I'm a good person. Mm. Well, I think that's really lovely, Dad. And I know that you are a good person, uh, so that certainly helps. I know you're a very good person. To kind of piggyback on part of what you're saying there, I, I think part of what you're alluding to is this idea of kind of uh, of optimism and hopefulness. Mm. And maybe in our current climate, a, a stance of realistic optimism and hopefulness, because mm. of course, you know, our circumstances are bounded. Um, but it's very, very hard to look forward, to plan for the future, to set a good goal, to make a good intention, to reframe your sense of identity as we're trying to do here a little bit. If you're not at least a little optimistic about what's going to happen in the future, if you're constantly glass half empty, it's really, really hard to make happy plans for yourself because um, you can't create a future that you can't imagine. And I think that that's just a really important idea. We need to kind of free our imagination a little bit about what we could be or the circumstances we could find ourselves in in order to make those circumstances real things for us. So yeah, there's a certain aspect of it that is about finding the silver lining in the cloud, assuming that that silver lining is authentic. We're going to have an episode in a little bit that's on forced optimism and things like that. But assuming that the happiness is truly authentic on some level, assuming that you can really find the flower in the concrete, and you're not just imagining that a flower is there because it's convenient for you, then I think that that sort of positive outlook is a great contributor to mental health and happiness, particularly when it comes to forming goals. So what do you think? A uh, 10,000 researchers would entirely agree with you. <laughs> who've written a million papers <laughs> right, yeah, off the, absolutely. right off right for the start. Um, you know, it's so funny. It, it, it leads me to reflect on where's the garden and what are the flowers, right? Mm, and mm -hmm. as you can say, you know, if we're trying to grow flowers in concrete, there's no basis for optimism about that. Through heroic effort, maybe, maybe we can kind of get a daisy to sprout eventually, but wow, it's an uphill struggle. 
And it would be delusional in a sense to be optimistic about that. So I think in a funny kind of way, what's helpful is to recognize and to honor and own what you see about where there is stony ground. There are not the causes and conditions for something you might wish for, very understandably, including with other people. Uh, I Mm. think it's actually helpful to appreciate that with other people, if we get appointed to an expectation or a longing that becomes, um, that has momentum in it, with another Mm. person who's just gonna disappoint that again and again. Uh, We cast our seeds on that ground, hoping for something to sprout, and again and again and again. The the seeds cannot sink in, or even they're they're scrubbed aside by the other person. You're gonna get disappointed again and again about that. And um, in a funny kind of way, getting realistic about that, um, learned realism, not just learned optimism, but learned realism is really helpful mm, because mm-hmm. then you you start withdrawing effort from that territory. You're not so frustrated by it, you recognize it. And in that can be a mourning, a grieving, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, there's a loss there, but there's you can see the loss and then you can kind of move on. And then meanwhile, for example, inside your own mind, even if the world itself is not very fertile these days for starting a restaurant, <laughs> This is not a good time <laughs> to open a restaurant, right? Um, you know, or maybe a tattoo parlor. This is not really the time for that necessarily. But on the other hand, inside your own mind, you can be extremely optimistic for what you can shed, what you can release, such as unrealistic uh, expectations for others. And also, you could be very optimistic about qualities you can grow inside such Mm -hmm. as, for example, Mm -hmm. learning the skillfulness that you were teaching there a little while ago about um, effective ways to form habits and form intentions and make plans that are goal-directed in ways that are bounded and finite and time-oriented and under your own control that have to do with your own identity fundamentally. Like that's something you can do inside your mind. You can grow those flowers of good intentions uh, inside your mind, which are then the basis for the development of good habits. And so I think that's that's really useful. And then just the last thing that really strikes me is that in a weird kind of way, I find it myself at least helpful to appreciate how horrible things have been for many, many people throughout history. And I'm reading right now a novel, speaking of reading, called Pachinko. Uh, set in Korea. I'm only probably a tenth of the way into it. It's a, it's a marvelous book. It was a finalist for the National Book Award, I think, in 2019, Pachinko. And it's about Korea and starting uh, right around the turn of the 20th century in the early 1900s, probably moving toward today, perhaps, eventually. And so much struggle, so much difficulty. A country under occupation, the, the Japanese, now it's divided Northern and South Korea. So much stuff has happened so many, most people throughout history, certainly since agriculture came in and people began living in more tighter communities, most people have lived under the, the thumb or the boot of some authoritarian asshole <laughs> throughout history. And um, so in a funny kind of way, recognizing how bad it's been for so many people and how often it does go bad uh, is not a way to minimize or justify what is bad today, but somehow to put it in perspective. Mm. And I, I find for myself that it, you know, it's kind of weirdly helpful to put things in the larger context 
mm-hmm. which then makes the little ways, like the the family that starts it out in the novel I'm reading, the little ways they can have a family and they can find love and they can build a small business and they can get on through to the other side at least a little bit every day. You know, when you are aware of the larger horribleness, somehow it helps us be more optimistic about and resourceful about the local goodness that is nonetheless still under our power. Yeah. No, I think that's really well said, and that's a really good reframing kind of of what I was speaking to earlier about that realistic optimism. Mm. And yeah, if you're if you're fishing in a parking lot, you're not going to catch a lot of fish. <laughs> just bottom line. So maybe being optimistic about that action is just a waste of your time. So yeah. finding those spaces for realistic optimism, the things you can control, really does uh, wrap this kind of conversation up pretty nicely. Because at the end of the day, I think we're really just talking about agency. We're talking about agency and we're talking about good effort and finding that good effort inside of the spaces that we can have a positive influence. And part of that is about finding the ones where we can't maybe and finding the ones where it would just be a waste of our effort to uh, pursue that good agency. Yeah. Yeah, You're reminding me of, uh, you know, the Leonard Cohen lyric, uh, Leonard's no longer alive, uh, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And it's an amazing line from a really wonderful poet. And I think that's a great note to close this episode on. So my hope is that this conversation about the past, intentions, resolutions, and looking forward to the next of the year has maybe spurred some thinking in you if you're listening, that maybe you can take this as an opportunity to sit down, reflect on the year that has been, and look forward to the year that will be. Um, And maybe inside yourself, do a little thinking about the aspects of your identity that have been really supportive of your good purposes versus the ones that have maybe not contributed so much to your good purposes. And uh, find some of those fulcrum habits, those little things where they really, really change your outcomes in a major way on a day-to-day basis, whether that's going to bed at a certain time, uh, the number of hours that your butt spends in the chair work in, or whatever else. So hopefully this is a nice little encouragement to do that. And uh, we've given you a little bit of support on that journey. And before we let you go, I want to remind you one more time about our Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Uh, the support of our listeners means an enormous amount to me. I know it means an enormous amount to Rick. And it's one of the things that allows us to keep on doing these podcasts. Uh We've created a really cool little community over there. Uh, People send me really wonderful messages on a regular basis that I profoundly appreciate. And if you ever want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. And I think that that's all I can think of at the moment. So on that note, thanks again for listening. If you have the opportunity uh, to subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice, we'd really appreciate that as well. And until next time, thanks again for listening to Being Well. Well.